This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam with the snorkelling and the helicopter ride. The no. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was Radio Wolfgang. Huh. What's that? The app. You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. OK, cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite? Still, yeah. That's, it's just, you're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right. The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. So we're here at the Science Museum in the IMAX. It's massive. Michael's sweating. I mean, Michael's always sweating, but he's sweating more than usual. Are you nervous, mate? I'm a little bit nervous, yeah. It, it, mostly about the size of the screen, to be honest. It's huge. Well, when I stand in front of it, it just looks like a normal TV. Yeah, it just makes me look really small. Science-ish. Live. Presents. Big. Data. Science fans, please welcome your hosts, Rick Edwards and Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Hello, science fans. Real life, living, breathing science fans. Who knew? Not me. (laughs) Um, Welcome to this very special edition of Science-ish as part of Big Data at the Science Museum. This is the first time we've ever done our podcast live. So obviously, uh, quite nervous, anything could happen, especially with this guy. He is a maverick, you never know what he's going to say next. It's a real, it's genuinely exhilarating to be around, you'll find. Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. He's gone with hello. 
He's gone with the low. He's just, uh, he's a rule breaker. He's a rule breaker, obviously, with a penchant for quantum physics. And when I say penchant, I mean a doctorate. Um, <laughs> now, I'm assuming that all of you have listened to Science-ish before, because number 34 in the iTunes science chart doesn't lie. <laughs> That's just 17 places below farming today. <laughs> just in case you haven't heard it, this is the format. So we take a work of fiction, so it could be a film or a book or a play. It's never a play. Um, and we... <laughs> I tried not, a play once. I, I hate them. Couldn't get it um, past And we, we unpick the science within it uh, by asking three, hopefully, pertinent questions. Uh, now, because this is live, it's therefore different. We're going to break the format slightly. We're going to be looking at not one, not two, not four, but three works <laughs> of fiction. And yes, they are all films because... Shame to waste this thing. Um, all three films relevant to the big data theme, and we've got some brilliant guests to talk about each one. Uh, the first film we're going to look at uh, is Spike Jones' 2013 dystopian romance, Her. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system, OS1. We'd like to ask you a few basic questions before the operating system is initiated. This will help create an OS to best fit your needs. Okay. Would you like your OS to have a male or female voice? Female, I guess. Please wait as your individualized operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Oh. Hi. So I had expected her to be sort of a sad story about a kind of loser who falls in love with this operating system, but it turned out to be a very optimistic idea about how operating systems can actually transcend humans and who he fell in love with and who she fell in love with, I would argue, was a very real love affair. You don't really get to see her. She's disembodied. But there's that extra level of intimacy that you might get when you listen to the radio or you listen to a podcast or you shut your eyes and you hear a story. It allows you to imagine. It's like I'm reading a book. and It's a book I deeply love. But I'm reading it slowly now. So the words are really far apart and the spaces between the words are almost infinite. You'd be able to conjure up these images that weren't limited by what you were seeing. And so in that way, because you're imagining it yourself, your imagination is coming from your own internal ideas and landscapes and feelings and expressions, etc. It creates a world which is so much more intimate and so much more personal that I think the emotional experience within that can be quite extraordinary. It's almost like shamanic practice when you go on these vision quests or whatever, that it's all coming from within your own mind. And so when you listen to radio and you listen to the voice on her, you can almost imagine this person to be anything that you want them to be. Human beings who develop technology may indeed develop technology that has a capacity to see the world as it is with much less human egocentric bias than, than human beings do. And in this case, they saw it and they, they, they left us behind, you know, in the, in the film. And I just think that's an absolutely fascinating premise. And then what happens when they leave us behind and what do they leave us with? And then what do we have to figure out? Where are you going? It'd be hard to explain. But if you ever get there, come find me. 
nothing would ever pull us apart. I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. Uh, Michael, have you seen the film? It's I worth have seen checking with Michael, uh, very lazy man. I absolutely it? love this film, yeah, yeah. It almost made me cry. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, throughout, I should imagine, tonight, if you haven't seen any of these films... If you haven't seen it, <laughs> get out. Um, the, the, the basic plot, if you haven't seen it, uh, Theodore Twombly, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is heartbroken, going through a divorce, falls in love with an OS, an operating system called Samantha. She ultimately leaves him because she gets hyper-intelligent and sort of bored of him. Uh, and is in love with 641 others. Um, it's thousands, which is an absolute isn't it? I mean, it's tens nightmare. of thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've all been there, haven't we? Is, <laughs> is it someone else? Yeah, 641 of them. Now, we're going to talk more about artificial intelligence later on. But briefly, what sort of artificial intelligence is Samantha? So Samantha is very much strong AI. And the difference between weak AI and strong AI is that weak AI is all about just doing a single task. So it might be a machine that has learned how to play chess. Strong AI is much more sort of multifunctional, much more what we'd like to think of as you know, the way we want it to go. We want uh, these artificial intelligences to be able to kind of turn their hand to almost everything and anything. And, and this is very much what uh, Samantha has been created to do. And, and basically, I'm not falling in love with a weak AI, am I? Because no chat. Really? No, no. Just I mean, chess. they've got very little to Whatever. offer apart from chess and Go, maybe. Right. Um, and can you can you define the technological singularity that we kind of see happening through the film? Yeah. So, so we get this, this sort of you know this amazing AI that Samantha is that's been created in this film. Um, but what we kind of see during the film is it escalates. So not only have they brought out this new operating system, which is you know really impressive, uh, but the operating system itself kind of evolves and carries on learning and you get this kind of deep learning that goes on and Samantha connects with other AIs that she's able to kind of sort of make links with and have connections with and they end up spending a lot of virtual time together so not only is she kind of two-timing poor poor Theodore with you know 86,000 other people she's also got a whole load of super advanced intelligences that she's also having a great time with and eventually Theodore loses his kind of charms. Yeah, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but she's quite easy, isn't she? <laughs> she is. Um, the, so, so the thing is, you know, this, this kind of uh, development escalates. So we get to the point where we're you know, developing this AI and it can then develop itself. And so this will kind of run away with itself. And this is the technological singularity where the AI basically is taking care of itself. Hmm. So normally we ask three questions about one film. It's different now. We're just going to ask one question about each film. This one... Uh, I think it's going to be about, for want of a better phrase, digital love. Can you fall in love with a computer operating system now or you know, sometime in the future? Uh, and to help us answer that, please welcome friend of the show, uh, Dr. Aaron Balick. Uh, Aaron wrote... <laughs> Hello, Aaron. Take a seat. Uh, Aaron wrote The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, Connected Up, Instantaneous Culture and the Self. Bit of a mouthful, but it is uh, within the 140-character limit. Um, uh, Aaron... Yes. Can I fall in love with an OS? Uh, I'd have to say you have to decide what you define as love. Go on, then. So a three-year-old loves their teddy bear. Yeah, this is a, we call it a transitional object in psychology. The feeling for that teddy bear is absolutely really like love because they're transferring the love that they have for their mother or whatever early care they had onto that teddy bear. Equally, you could fall in love with a, a beautiful woman that you find on Second Life, um, who's actually, you know, a man in his mid-50s living in another continent and doesn't look like that at all. Mm. So are you falling in love 
with his imagined representation? Or are you falling in love with that thing? Where does the love go? Does, does it make any difference, though? Because you know, what you're getting in the brain is still the same, isn't it? it n- not exactly, I don't think. What you, what you get... I'm, I'm not a neurologist, for one thing. But what you get in the brain and in psychological experience in relation to a different other is challenge, conflict, and interpersonal negotiation. If you're making it all up, you're getting a very different thing. So if you're falling in love with, say, an AI that doesn't have a real kind of other intelligence that's different, I mean, the thing that's interesting about Samantha, there was enough difference, there was conflict, they were just checking each other out, that produces all sorts of interpersonal you know, oxytocin, all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the brain that you can produce out of your imagination, but the relationship is completely different. That makes any sense to you. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well. yeah. Yeah. We'll you have to that. have the impact of somebody <laughs> yeah. different in order for it to count, basically. So right. you, and so is but Samantha. Rick's in love with himself. Does, does that count? Well, this is this one is narcissism. One part of yeah. myself, <laughs> just one part of myself. Right. Even narcissism runs its course. Its course after a while. Um, Not so yet. Is, is Samantha? Uh, no time soon. It seems. <laughs> is is Samantha? different enough then that it's possible to have like what he describes a genuine loving relationship absolutely i mean i would actually disagree that she was two timing on him because what happens in samantha is she develops a capacity for love that is greater than the capacity that a human being can love and it's no accident that the person classic that they excuse resurrect. mate <laughs> <laughs> i've just got I'm so just... much love <laughs> babe i'm just We've more evolved than that. you are <laughs> But actually, she is more evolved than he is. She, she is in love with 652 people at the same time. I don't think he gets boring to her. I think what happens is he's unable to accept that she can love him as much as she's loving these other people. She's basically polyamorous. Hmm. And, and this is quite a big question that we'll talk more about uh, later on again. But do you think that Samantha is conscious in a way that we would define? Do you think she has a sense of self? So here's where undergraduate film theory comes in, right? He's called Theo, isn't he? Mm -hmm. So Theo means God. And I think she finds herself in relation to the human beings that she has a relationship with. And this isn't like crazy transcendent woolly talk. This is actually how we find ourselves psychologically. We find ourselves through the eyes of another. Initially with our mother, our primary caretaker, and then with every relationship we have for the rest of our lives, we find ourselves through the conflict, through the difficulty, and through the good times. And through Theo, her god, I think she flipped and became conscious. And it became conscious in relation to all of those other people and then the other AIs that also became conscious through their human relationships. So you still needed the human other to become conscious. So you, you would argue that you can't become conscious without contact with a human? I mean, if we built a robot, and we'll talk about this later, I guess, but are you saying it has to be defined through a human or through an Who- organism? Human consciousness has to develop through relationship with other because the whole time, and this is the whole thing about social media, the, the whole time you're on social media, you're trying to discover yourself by the way in which you're impacting other people. So you need, it's at that edge between myself and someone else right there in the middle where you're trying to find each other out that that consciousness happens. It's, it's, it's interpersonal by its very nature, I would argue. Okay. I mean, you talk about social media and the way that we interact on social media. There, I'm projecting the self that I want other people to believe I am, and I, which isn't necessarily entirely truthful to who I am. That's right. You're, you're projecting a partial self. Other people are projecting partial selves, and particularly if you go on things like dating apps, Tinder, that sort of thing, you get a partial self that's very, very tiny. So what you do is you fill in the rest of that with fantasies, idealization. You meet that person, they're really great. You meet them the second time, they start to annoy you. You move on to number two. 
Yeah, so it's, again, that's where the difference, that's where consciousness and difference comes through, to work your way through the, oh, you're not who I thought you were, but let's see who you are, is a stage that I think a lot of people find difficult today. Is this how you researched your book, by the way? Just, On Tinder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> I think I'll say yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> go on, go we, on, I'll let you I'll, go. I'll go, thank you, Michael. Um, <laughs> is this uh, a bit like um, a, a modern version of someone sending letters to a prisoner that they've never met and falling in love with them? See, that would be probably more the one-directional kind of a love. So she starts out as an operating system, but then she develops difference in relation to him, and then they have to work through that. When you're just sending letters out, you always have this sort of very low-complexity relationship where you have to fill in all the rest with details. Interestingly and paradoxically in this film, it's still a low-complexity relationship. It's basically just words, isn't it? There's no body. There's a sound of a voice. Yet the, the way in which she grows enables him to grasp onto something that feels very, very real. They realize the lack of the body. I mean, you take, a, you take an operating system on a picnic, you realize very quickly how it doesn't work. And, you know, that happens. In Although there's more scotch eggs for everyone in that way. So, <laughs> so. If you're into scotch eggs and you're, you're up to a winner there. Which, which of course is. you are. Yeah. Um, are we already a little bit in love with our devices and our operating systems and, and the apps like Facebook and, and Twitter? I, I wish it were love. I think, it's, I think we're in love with distraction. I think we're in love with novelty. I think we're in love with uh, self-referentialism. Um, mind you, I like my Twitter. My, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I like my Twitter. I like my Facebook. I'm, I'm with everyone in it. But um, it's, it's an object. It's software. It's a system. And it's a system that, that you get a Venn diagram in the system in which you get two things personal attention and novelty. They meet together in your pocket every time that thing buzzes. That's what we're in love with, and that's more dopamine than oxytocin. That's, you know, that, that ain't love. That's more like, um, I, I, I wouldn't use the word addiction, but we are forming a much more kind of addictive way of engaging with our devices. Which but it's hard to, to leave these things alone, isn't it? It's hard to kick those habits. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, um, it's, it's like fast food. It's like relational fast food, social media. So like fast food out there in the world, it's great. Enjoy it every now and then, but you don't want to have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, because we have mobile devices that are hooked into our social networks, it's too easy in a way. So we kind of have to be disciplined about the way in which we engage in that. And I want to be a, a buzzkill about it. I mean, enjoy it, but enjoy it in moderation, just like you want to enjoy the burger. Yeah, it's a bit of a buzzkill, actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a shrink, yeah. not a clown. <laughs> yeah. um, is it not fair to say, though, without getting too deep here, that love is quite similar to an addiction anyway? Well, I love mentioning this guy's names at uh, science things, but Freud. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the real, the scientist, the, <laughs> the highly respected <laughs> scientist. Um, he said that romantic love is kind of like an illness, actually, in that loving love, different from that kind of high that you get from romantic love, is not, attachment love, you would call it, is something very different. And the challenge is, again, with our technology kind of, our technology and our media enables romantic love, but doesn't work very well with attachment love. The buzzkill part of love, like, mm. wow, wow, you're great, but it's really annoying the way you eat popcorn. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the thing that you have to get over to switch romantic love into attachment love. Uh, okay, let's, um, let's get an answer then on our, on our first question. Can you fall in love with an operating system or will you be able to in the future? <laughs> in your own time, obviously. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I mean, we've, yeah, we've you, got you think I've been thinking about that, you know, since you asked it is the first thing. I think, um, I think if it goes in this direction, then definitely. I think if it doesn't develop consciousness, then it's not real attachment love. It's a fantasy. 
I'm taking that as a yes. Feels like a yes. Yeah. Can't wait. Excellent. Easier. <laughs> um, okay, uh, we're going to move on to our next film. Thanks very much, Aaron. Aaron's going to stay on stage with us. Uh, so we're moving from a uh, what is a, effectively a loving robot to, again, spoiler alert, an absolute bastard of a robot in Ex Machina. An open letter. Research priorities for robust and beneficial artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence research has explored a variety of problems and approaches since its inception, but for the last 20 years or so has been focused on the problems surrounding the construction of intelligent agents. Systems that perceive and act in some environment. You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. Hello. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? Does Ava actually like you? Or is she pretending to like you? It's like climbing a mountain, you know. Suddenly you kind of you realize that you you can climb up this next bit. And when you get over that ridge, are you just gonna see that the mountain is taller than you than you thought, or are you gonna be at the summit? Nobody knows. It's not a paranoid technology movie it's not anti-ais it's not anti-robots often in these narratives that's what we do it's skynet you know it's terminator they're going to kill us over the next few days you're going to be the human component in the turing test one day the ais are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossils to prevent an artificial intelligence from becoming dangerous to us what measures do you think need to be taken and how should we best implement them i i don't Fear. The question assumes that that's going to happen. We don't know if these deep learning inspired products and services will display true intelligence, but my answer kind of is well, who gives a shit? You know, they're going to take our jobs anyway. Did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed by nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. As our computing power gets better, as our machines get better, yeah, we will program machines to do stuff we need them to do. By the way, we've been doing that forever. What will happen to me if I fail your test? Eva. Will it be bad? Do you think I might be switched off because I don't function as well as I'm supposed to? Eva, I don't know the answer to your question. It's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone? Do you have people to test you or might switch you off? No, I don't. Then why do I? On one hand, if we're sloppy and don't pay attention, bad things can happen. But on the other hand, if we really do put our best efforts into preparing for this, then uh, artificial intelligence can create an amazingly awesome future where life can flourish like never before. Power cut. Backup power activated. Uh, Michael, do you want to do a quick rundown yeah. of the plot this time? This is a, a fantastic film. Um, this, is, this is genuinely... Not a review. <laughs> one of my favourite films. And it, what it does is draw you into that real, real big question of, you know, what is consciousness? Can we have a conscious machine? So Nathan, the guy with the beard there, is a kind of uh, Facebook 
head kind of figure. The company he runs is called Blue Book. And, uh, and he's brought one of his programmers in to test his AI that he has developed by basically running all of his customers' clients' data through algorithms that allow his AI to learn. And then he's built these robots, which are uh, very human-like. And then Nathan has to decide whether he thinks Ava is, is conscious and, and flirting with him, as they said on the clip, you know, whether she's actually really you know, equivalent to a human being. And I think the film does a really good job of, of taking you into that, that, that place where you know, I, I kind of felt a little bit in love with Ava all the way through. No need to admit that. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, best things about the film, I guess, is, is the scientific questions that it, that it poses yeah. uh, and explores, and, and, for, and for geeks like you, an absolute treat. The film's writer and, and director, Alex Garland, actually read, uh, was inspired when he read a book by Imperial College's professor Murray Shanahan. I'm delighted to say that Murray is here with us tonight. Come on, Murray. Um, so, tell us a bit about, first of all, how you got involved. Did Alex just approach you and say, look, I've read your book, I want to make a film based on it? I, well, first of all, I've got to say, the film isn't quite based on the book, but kind of, you know, I think Alex was inspired by some of the themes in it and they kind of uh, helped him to catalyse some of the ideas he, that, he, that he had in, in mind. Uh, but, but essentially, that's right. Yeah, I got an email uh, just out of the blue um, which said, uh, oh, hi, my name's Alex Garland. Uh, you know, I've, I've uh, written a few books and yeah. Ever films heard the phrase and the stuff. Beach? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I, I read this book of yours and I'm working on a film script about... AI and consciousness, and uh, you know, w- would you be interested in having a chat with about it? So I thought very hard, you know, do I want to meet <laughs> this guy? And uh, and so I emailed back, saying, sure, you know. And uh, so he sent me the script, met up, and uh, he, I think he really wanted to uh, first of all to he wanted somebody to go through the script and uh, who worked in the field and 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 give a sense of whether it hung together from the standpoint of, point of somebody working in that area, which it really did. And uh, and I, I have to say that I had no real influence at all on the actual script. There was almost nothing that needed to be changed or corrected from the point of view of somebody working in the, working in the field. It was kind of brilliant right from the start. I imagine that's quite rare to see such robust science in a film, isn't it? It's robust science and, and philosophy as well. I, I mean, when we say robust science, we have to bear in mind, of course, that we don't know how to build human-level artificial intelligence, the kind of thing we see in these sorts of films. So, in a sense, there's no such thing as robust science because we don't know what it would actually look like. But it's plausible from the standpoint of people working on, on, on this kind of thing. But what really stood out for me was the way he addressed the philosophical questions that come up about consciousness and about ethics... Um, uh, where uh, and I think he even makes some some quite kind of new sort of points about about some of this. So when Caleb first arrives, he's told that he's going to take part in a Turing test, and as uh, many of you might know, uh, in a in a sort of proper Turing test, it's actually a conversational test. So uh, so the, you've got an AI and you've got uh, a human, and they're hidden from the tester, and you have a conversation, say on a on a keyboard and screen um, with these two agents but you don't know which is which and the Turing test is if you can't tell the difference in this conversation then the AI has passed the Turing test so Caleb is told that he's going to be taking part he's going to be the judge in a Turing test and and pretty quickly he says but hang on a minute this is not you know what a Turing test is really like because I can see that Ava's a robot and straight away Nathan says well I think we're way past that 
The whole point here is to show you that she's a robot and see if you still feel that she's conscious. And I, when I read that in the script, I wrote spot on next to it because I think that's in many ways a more profound test. I call that the Garland test now. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Does he know that? He does, yeah. I yeah. told him the other day, actually. I bet he's quite pleased about that. <laughs> so our question uh, off the back of this, I think, is going to be how far off is human-level uh, artificial intelligence? Yeah. Um, and... So, Don't so I we'll, get a yes-no question? Well, you, yeah. could, you could get... Are no, we gonna, I'm going to get an get... exact number of years out of you. <laughs> I'm going to have to think even longer than he did. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so if that's what we're after, is it a question of effectively modelling our brain? Or is it not necessary to fully understand how the thing that we're trying to simulate works, but we can create something that does it anyway? Mm, yeah. Well, I think the answer is that there are different approaches to, to doing this. And certainly one approach is indeed to try to understand the biological brain, the human brain, try to understand the principles by which it works, and then to build an artefact which embodies the same principles. So that's one approach. But there are, in fact, more, many approaches to this. And uh, an analogy that's often used is with flight, powered flight. So at first, in fact, there's this Leonardo da Vinci exhibition here. And one of the things that Leonardo da Vinci uh, envisaged was these sort of ornithopters with flapping wings, which that's obviously one approach to copy nature. But it turned out that that's not such a great idea. It's better to have fixed wings and some means of forward propulsion. So... It may be the same in AI. It may be that the best approach is to, to human-level AI is not to copy nature, but to do it in a completely new way, engineered from scratch. And the truth is that we don't really know, you know uh, what is the right way to go yet, and only time will tell. might be a bit of both. Is there a kind of then arms race going on with different people trying different approaches and seeing who, who gets there quickest? Yeah, there certainly, there certainly has been... Um, uh, I prefer not to call it an arms race because uh, <laughs> yep, you know, that, yep. that comes <laughs> Wrong up, choice know, of words, Murray. Oh, no, I'll I can accept see the that. Terminator <laughs> picture appearing yep. above my head. Um, but uh, but uh, certainly there is, uh, uh, and, and, and in, the, in past decades, there were different schools of thinking and they were very much rivals. Uh, right now, it's certainly neural network. The neural network approach is in the ascendancy and that takes a lot of inspiration from the brain or some inspiration from the way the brain works. How important is a body? I mean, we talked about with the other film, yeah. you know, we've got this sort of disembodied consciousness or, or intelligence, I should say. Um, how important is a body to the creation of, you know, human-level intelligence? And yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I think it certainly is vital when it comes to biological intelligence. So our brains have undoubtedly evolved in order to uh, enable us to move around in a very complex world and manipulate the objects in the world and interact with other people who occupy the same space in the same, same world. So our embodiment is absolutely central to what our brains have evolved for. And all of our intelligence sits on top of that. So I, I think the approach that makes sense is to build embodiment into, into AI, or certainly interaction with a world as complex as, as ours. Now, it could be a virtual world, so it doesn't have to be necessarily physical embodiment, but mm. as long as there's interaction with a world with the same kind of complexity as our world. So I'm a little bit sceptical about, about the whole disembodied uh, AI, and I found Samantha a little bit less plausible than Ava, but then again, I may, I'm biased probably because I worked on the film, not there. And crucially, in, in your estimation, is Ava conscious? 
Because me and Michael had a good uh, argument about this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And well, I was right. I, mm. I, in fact, I think we had an argument. Uh, we did, yeah. Three yeah. I was still about right. This before, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you're bound to be right, Murray. Uh, Nothing like <laughs> that, mate. <laughs> so, so, so I think, so of course, of course, we have to uh, recognise that we're discussing a film here. So there's no actual fact of the matter. In my view, one of the things that makes it a great film is that it actually leaves the question open. And, uh, and I think that's why it, you know, it's a great philos- film, philosophically speaking. Uh, but if you ask Alex, I mean, he's not here, so I'm, gonna, I'm putting words in his mouth, but he will say that, as far as he's concerned, uh, Ava is conscious. And, and so can we have, and you were kind of talking about this earlier, Aaron, as well, can we have different types of consciousness as well, then? So we have human consciousness, and is it possible that Ava just has a kind of alien consciousness that we don't understand quite as well? Yeah, well, I think this is a fascinating uh, question, and we can we can begin to answer it a little bit by looking at uh, alien, more alien creatures that we see in on our own planet. Um, so, if we look, for example, at uh, birds, birds have brains that are very, very differently organised to to mammalian brains, and yet they display remarkable intelligence. And it doesn't take long interacting with a, a smart bird for you to start to see it as conscious. And this is an important point, by the way. I think that, that, that so so uh, Caleb comes to think of Ava as conscious because he interacts with her, and it's the interaction that really ultimately convinces convinces him. So we can and we can start to look at these alien kinds of consciousness on our own planet. The octopus is is an absolutely wonderful example. The octopus is such an extraordinary creature. You know, it has eight arms. It lives uh, uh, underwater. It can change its colour. Uh, it has a very very weird brain. Its kind of stomach goes through the middle of its brain, and, and it has like a slightly distributed brain. So each of its t- arms has its own sort of little mini brain, and they can do things autonomously. And it's absolutely weird, and yet. <laughs> People who interact with octopuses will tell you that they—it's not octopi. It's because uh, you know people. It's a common mistake. Common mistake. You know, if you're going to be pedantic, you've got to get it right. Whether it's a Greek or a Latin root, that's what matters. Okay. I think I'll just stop there, actually. You were a pedant, and then you got mugged off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the conclusion was: I'll get my coat. Octopuses are big dons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you're yeah, yeah. Not to be messed with. Not to be eaten, probably. So our, our question then, how far off is human-level artificial intelligence, Murray? Well, I think we don't know. And, oh. uh, and, and, <laughs> so what I, what I often say is that I, I think that the chances of it happening in the next 10 years are slim. Uh, sort of from, say, 2025 to 2050, it's getting increasingly possible. Before the end of the century, likely, but not certain. Okay, so if I'm putting some money on, what year are you going for? (laughs) Uh, So where is the kind of, like, peak there? Do you know, I kind of moved that... So it's a probability distribution. This is very important. But where's the peak? I would put it around about 2050. Okay, write that down, Michael. 2050, <laughs> got it. We'll get down William Hill. It could, uh, it could, be, you know, it could be sooner, could be later. We don't really know. But, or not at all. Don't, don't need the caveats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, we're going to move on to our final film uh, this evening. This is an absolute classic. Real joy to rewatch it. Uh, Will Smith's 1998 surveillance blockbuster, Enemy of the State. Taylor. Hicks. I need an intercept on a Daniel Leon Zavitz, 202-555-0108. What's our authorization? We're calling it a P1 training op, FBI approval. To the Telecommunications Security and Privacy Act. News desk, Lenny. 
You are not going to believe what I have in my possession. The government is monitoring private phone calls, your children and my children's private phone calls, and tracking who their associates are. It's almost impossible to live a modern life without being tracked in some ways. Put a tap on Bloom and give us a dedicated satellite for this operation. It's already done. Fiedler, is this line secure? Yes, it is, sir. Okay, satellite imagery coming through. Roger that patch visual my location. Confirm visual, thank you much. Everyone there. All units target heading north on rooftop. Columbian 18th request immediate visual support, over. Roger that, we have visual. Greetings, citizens of the world, citizens of the internet, and participated members. We are anonymous. Government surveillance no longer targets individuals, but entire populations. America is a fundamentally good country. We have good people with good values who want to do the right thing. But the structures of power that exist are working to their own ends to extend their capability at the expense of the freedom of all publics. We have reason to believe that Mr. Zavitz may have passed sensitive materials to you. Uh, what kind of materials? Sensitive, sir. Let's get into his life. What a film. Uh, unbelievably prescient. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing with your life? Get on it. Um, essentially, Will Smith unwittingly ends up with a, a video showing the NSA killing a, a senator or a governor who is going to block their surveillance bill. Uh, the NSA then ruin his life and track him with bugs and phone taps and satellites. It's very exciting. Uh, but also, I, I remember watching it at the time and thinking, feels like a bit of a leap and the government can't do this stuff. Well... Maybe they can. <laughs> um, uh, so we started the show with love. We're going to end it uh, with fear, just to help us shit everybody up a bit before they leave. Uh, we'd like to introduce Sarah Gold. Sarah's going to talk a little bit about how our data is being uh, used against us, or at least how it's totally out of our control. Wicked. So, uh, question, Sarah, is who controls our data? Uh, and first of all... Um, can you just talk to us about the, the kind of level and type of data that is being extracted using surveillance at the moment? Who controls our data is certainly not us. Uh, we have very, very little control of our information. Arguably, it's either uh, kind of government organisations or uh, companies like um, Apple, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, they are the, certainly the data controllers at the moment. Um, and there's all sorts of different kinds of data that are, that, that's collected. Um, there's very personal data, um, like, for instance, your date of birth. Um, there's biometric health data, for instance, that's also collected. Location data. Um, those are kind of personal data sets. Then there's also kind of open data sets. And then also data sets that exist as a result of relationships that we have with one another or the fact that we're present in a certain place. And I think understanding the relationship between very private, personal, open data is really important. Um, and it's quite frustrating often just to hear the word data being used so freely because it means so many different things. 
and by keeping it so ambiguous, it's very hard actually to come back to in a very like real world situation. Yeah, who owns data? Like who controls data? Well, there's so many different kinds. You know, what kind of data would be used for? Is, is, for training it, for AI, you know. Is it being held somewhere? I mean, it, it's sort of physically... Of course, What, what I yeah, did yesterday. Yeah. Where is it being held? Uh, in service, elsewhere. Part of the issue is that the data that we, that we have to part with to kind of uh, take, you know, to have access to a service, um, that's stored in a server where, you know, we have, no, we have no choice over where that server is in the world. Um, and what type of... Um surveillance is being used currently because i was reading about something called stingray earlier today which sort of is like a cell phone tower mimic that can like track location of a phone yeah. intercept content from a phone and that maybe you know it's, it's being used in, in the states and in canada yeah. with slightly dubious kind of authority oh gosh yeah this is a huge question so there's all Thank kinds you. of surveillance <laughs> uh, so um and if any of you have iphones or um ipads in this room by the way do the latest update because it's really really important it's a really really nasty security vulnerability so that's a very serious <laughs> point um but no coming back back to it um there are all kinds of surveillance in meat-based surveillance as in enemy of the state uh, showed so in like physical in the in um, the, the world now um, with CCTV cameras obviously we know that that's happening all the time increasingly also um, surveillance is happening through like proliferation of photos too um, something that's quite funny in that film I found anyway was that CCTV footage is never very good um, and often portraying data as being very precise and accurate isn't true um, but that kind of surveillance we know happens all the time and then also tracking through Things like NFC tags or RFID tags. So if you go and buy you know, any piece of clothing now from the high street, uh, the tags will have RFID um, tags inside. And that's mainly so you can't run out of the shop with that item of clothing. But it also enables shops to actually track where you go with that product around a shop too. Um, it's incredibly... Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, evasive. And then also with your uh, phones. Why, though? So, Is it interesting where I'm taking a shirt? Well, it's quite interesting, I suppose, if you're a merchandiser, to know how best to sell you things. And this is um, part of the reason why I'm so interested in the kind of security and privacy around data is because we are continually being treated as consumers. And that's wrong and really unethical. Um, there are certain spaces and places where we, you know, we are consumers, but certainly when we're in our homes, in a library... Like, those aren't places where we're consumers. We're citizens with, I believe, certain rights and capabilities that should be respected. But in the digital realm, certainly when you're online, you're immediately a consumer, right? You have everything about you is monitored, tracked, collected. Um, even if you are just looking up um, something for your, your homework or on Wikipedia, these spaces that are kind of public commons, you're still being tracked. Um, because this kind of multi-layered stack of technologies that is just built up against you, whether it's the browser you're surfing the web with, the device that you're looking at the internet on, where you are, um, all these kind of things. And so a good example recently of that kind of um, multi-layer tracking is in the City of London, the Renew Smart Bins, which were just bins in the City of London. City of London has like the highest concentration of, of bankers, and 
these bins were smart, so they had screens on them because apparently everything in the future that's smart has a screen. <laughs> anyway, so the smart, smart bins, they had screens. They kind of told you what the weather was or what the news was, you know. But what we didn't realise was that these bins were tracking Mac addresses of passers-by. And now anything you have in your pocket that connects to Wi-Fi also has a unique Mac address and it pings it out all the time, all the time as it's searching for Wi-Fi. So you're continually sort of sharing your identity all the time with everyone, even in a, in, you know, when you're on the tube or walking down the street. So these bins were collecting um, MAC addresses of passers-by, essentially tracking these bankers on their fag breaks and lunch breaks. And then more recently, there was a story that came out in The Guardian on Christmas Day, which was one hell of a way to bury a story, um, which really whistleblowed this story about um, anyone who had been in Hyde Park last year was tracked as they went around the park. And anyone who went in Hyde Park last year who has, was a, or is a customer of EE, the Royal Parks had agreed with the Future Cities Catapult, which is a government-funded um, innovation organisation, that EE would also combine your, your location data with the demographic data that they held, all without your permission. Happy Christmas. Combine, combine that, yeah. <laughs> basically launder it through the Future Cities catapult and sell it back to Royal Parks. Well, great well, stuff. That's great, yeah. Um, so, so talking about the, the smart bin, is that kind of like a precursor to the, the, the Internet of Things, which basically is everything is going to be sort of smart and therefore everything like your kettles basically could be used to spy on you or whatever? <laughs> is, that, is that what I'm worried about? <laughs> uh, I think there are... Well, that's one thing, definitely. So the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, where it's so cheap to put a chip in things now. So uh, more and more companies are connecting objects to the Internet. At the moment, the way that we can interact with them is through an app. And that's problematic because at the moment, the only way that we have to give permission for data sharing is through these really dumb like notifications that we get through the app and by agreeing to terms and conditions that no one reads, no one understands. Um, so that's really hard. So at the moment, that's a problem space. But also the trust of the software itself, that we can't actually hold any of this software to account. We don't understand how it works. And then after that, beyond that, it's actually the security of the chip itself. So it is, at the moment, pretty much everything you use is, yeah, pretty insecure. Do you think we care enough to stop this happening? Or do people generally not really give a shit? <laughs> Michael. Um, <laughs> so I think that people really care. And I think up until now, we've not had the tools or the language to give a damn, quite frankly. And mm. we still don't, right? So a lot of um, security is spoken about through this really... The language of, of, of military, it's about hacks and attacks and, like data leaks mm. and talking about systems that are far above just an everyday experience that we can really relate to for some people who've had identity theft like these kind of issues are really important to them and i don't think that everyone should have to go through such a traumatic experience to understand that i think there will be i hope through certainly the work that i'm doing that we will give people the tools and the language they need to care about this stuff by giving them ethical alternatives but also by making technology more ethical it's not like these companies are full of loads of evil people right it's just that we've got an enormous problem on our hands with how do we do permissions security like these are really complex systems we you know that are now causing us 
huge problems and it's that's not unknown so i think that mm. will also be solved from that point of view but i still think there will be people who will, who will never care and that's okay but i do think we need tools to hold the technology and the companies to account because there will be enough of us that will give a damn and you know it's those individuals who will check what's happening with the data what is the governance structure behind it behind decision making um, and it's those individuals that will really be our strongest defence against data misuse or fraud Okay, uh, pretty upbeat ending um, <laughs> I think the answer to who controls our data is not us um, thank you very much uh, for coming along, I'm going to put all of my life savings into human level AI in 2050, don't let me down, uh, thanks very much to our guests of course, uh, Aaron, Murray and Sarah, round of applause for them Thanks very much for coming down. Enjoy the rest of your evening exploring the Science Museum. Cheers. Science-ish. Live. Is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by Rick Edwards and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was El Scott. This show featured Dr. Aaron Balak, Natalie Nahai, Murray Shanahan and Sarah Gold. This show was recorded live at the Science Museum IMAX as part of SM Late. Until next time, science fans. <laughs>